The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the new abnormal edition. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2016. Uh, On today's show, we're going to, in our own way, I guess, celebrate the new abnormal. And for that, we have an unusual show. We'll begin by discussing the election among ourselves. Then we'll be joined by Brian Lauder and Jamel Bowie to talk about what works of art uh, or popular culture we might turn to for solace in uh, what may turn out to be very dark times. If we're lucky, they won't. Um, And then finally, we're joined by Ron Rosenbaum, Slate contributor and author of the book Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of Evil, to talk about how dark times might get and whether or not uh, Germany in the 1930s is an appropriate analogy to our present circumstances. Perhaps they're not. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, Julia, well, the world does continue to spin somewhat improbably. Do we have business today? Yeah, I wanted to mention what our Slate Plus segment will be this week. We've got, as Steve noted, three uh, sort of unorthodox topics this week and our central conversation about what culture is useful for in times of political calamity went quite long. So we had a chunk of it about comedy and essentially whether we'll ever laugh again, basically, (laughs) Um, which we're going to offer for your Slate Plus delectation. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the late night talk show hosts about SNL, uh, glancingly about Leonard Cohen, who I think in a more normal week we would have spent more time discussing. You'll hear that if you're a Slate Plus member. If you are not a Slate Plus member, I urge you please to go to slate.com slash Culture Plus, um, a subscription to Slate Plus annually now costs only $35. It's a great way to get more of this show every week, and it's also a great way to support independent journalism at a moment that sorely needs it. All right, Steve, onward. All right, well, why don't we just dive into a maybe possibly somewhat freeform discussion about where our respective heads are at a week after the election of uh, Donald Trump. Um, Julia, why don't you start? I have to start? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, my God. Dana, why don't you start? <laughs> <laughs> well, can I just can I just say that Dana, it's like pouring rain in New York City where we're taping on Tuesday morning, and Dana looks how I feel. Like, Dana looks like a wastrel out of Dickens. Her hair is plastered to her head. Her face is wan. <laughs> she looks destroyed by the world. Wait, and to complete the picture, my voice is horribly hoarse and may disappear in the middle of this podcast because on top of all the glories of last week, I was sick and hawking up green phlegm the whole time in a sort of symbolic representation of my inner state. Donald Trump, loogie in chief. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, you know, like I listened to your guys' show last week. You kindly taped for Election Day without me when I was off running around trying to manage our coverage. And you said at the top, like, this is a dispatch from across the the river of forgetting or something. And you sounded so innocent from this sweet pre-lapsarian moment where you could just talk about the crown. I'm heartbroken. I don't know what else to say. Like the heart, the heartbreak is less fresh than it was a week ago, but uh, I was sitting a few feet from where we are now taping with 30 or 40 of my colleagues as we uh, anticipated Clinton's victory and began to sense that it wasn't happening and had to rip up all of our plans and 
we were all stunned, and I still feel stunned. Uh, Dana, stunned. What um, What did you feel? What are you, What are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I have to confess to you guys that I may tape this podcast in a different mood than I've ever taped a podcast in because I'm not doing well at all. I mean, I'm sure that many of our listeners will identify with this feeling, but I think for the first 24 to 48 hours, I, I didn't even get to the policy implications or the foreign policy horrors or the ideas of deportation, immigration, all these like things looming before us. It was just the sheer trauma of the fact that he's not going away. Do you identify with that at all? I mean, I remember waking Absolutely, up the day after, yeah. well, the afternoon after, because I stayed up so late that night, and just having this feeling like he's not gone. His orange fucking face is still going to be in our goddamn lives for another four years. I mean, that in itself, I think, accounted for so much of the trauma for a couple of days that it was only then that I started to be able to read the headlines. I couldn't watch Hillary's concession speech. I couldn't watch his acceptance speech. The strange combination of being allergic to the news and kind of addicted to refreshing headlines over and over, but too traumatized to actually click on them. And I'm not trying to make this about me or be melodramatic or anything like that, but I've just been feeling all week the way that I felt when I was, I now know, in an actual depression in the 90s, you know? I mean, walking around with like a lead-lined cloak over my body at all times. I had that same thing of like p policy shocks popping up afterwards and being like, oh my God, abortion. Like it's been like 24 hours and I've, I haven't even gotten to the court yet. John Oliver described that really well in his really, really excellent show, which was all 30 minutes was about, you know, the election and, and, and just essentially him sitting at a desk responding to it. And he talked about that exact same thing, about things coming to you in waves and sitting bolt upright in the middle of the night, suddenly thinking the Supreme Court, you know, nuclear weapons. Steve, how did how how did it play in Ghent? Um, I mean, I'm as devastated as you both are. Uh, totally surprised. As it sinks in, part of what is sinking in is that uh, a, ma a man who lost the popular vote is now going to affect a revolution in American governance that probably exceeds what, what Reagan did. He lacks what grace and humility Reagan had that allowed Reagan to delegate to statesmen-like people um, in many instances. Uh, and um, Reagan certainly knew what he didn't know. Uh, and whatever one thought of Reagan, that was certainly a limit to his, you know, simplicity in some ways as a, as a policy thinker. Uh, Trump lacks all of these. One of the things that I said and regret having said exactly the way I said it on Twitter was, but, but I think the sentiment is worth repeating, which is that, you know, there's a sociologist of the professions who I really admired named Stephen Brent, who has this definition of what a professional is, which is slightly counterintuitive. And it went against what people had typically said about them. He said that really the most characteristic thing of professionals as a class is that they have what he calls self-directed dignity, which is a kind of deep sense of their own personal autonomy. And it doesn't mean that they're like the rich who think they get whatever they want. They, they understand that, they, that that autonomy exists within rational constraints. But nonetheless, they think of life as a self-authored thing. And when I think about what happens next, my fear is that, you know, for a good close to 50 years in American life, a kind of noble mistake was made, which was that the professional represented a kind of universal ideal for a supposedly universal middle class. And the big change in 
Reagan, I think, was that he really repealed that and allowed for the repeal of that sense of self-authorship and kind of universal dignity as a staple, a universal, possibly universal staple, like the defining feature of American democracy. And, um, and instead, it became a kind of class privilege. It seems to me the spirit of vengeance that's been unleashed in this election is against that. So my heart is broken abstractly because a thing that I think of as maybe the highest hope for American democracy as it actually exists in the real world, which is that every human being gets to believe they're a self-authored thing, most radical idea in the you know human history, and then also fearful personally in a new way, which is that I exist as I exist only because of an enormous amount of privilege surrounding my status as a professional or pseudo-professional. That is the thing that makes me feel existentially real is this autonomy and sense of self-authorship. And the culture seems to want to possibly take it away from me, which is to take it very personally, I understand. But it certainly wants to take it away from professionals as a class. Um, It's certainly what unites people like Trump and Peter Thiel. so uh, I can only hope that the forces that will defend uh, democratic principles overcome a kind of bloodlust and vengeance on the part of people who seem to instinctively hate them. And I hope that all of us and all of our families are safe because I think in no small part, we're poster children for some of the, some, believe me, Muslims, women, gays, people of color. Absolutely, our first thought has to be with them. But we inhabit our own skin too. And and a kind of hatred has been unleashed on the part of people who've lost out over the last 30 years against a certain class of winners that we're part of. And I just hope we can graduate from this awful experience intact as a democracy and with a greater sense of empathy for how contingent that privilege of self-authorship really was. I'm curious to discuss that more with you Steve because I'm not sure I totally understand it but I, I I don't know I guess of all the ways in which my heart was broken on Wednesday I felt the most terrifying thing was the idea that the set of groups that Trump spent the campaign deriding and denigrating and stirring up hate for that the generalized American care for the dignity and autonomy of those people was just nil, was like a null set, was just like not a factor, yeah. was just so devastating. And yeah. I, I, I mean, the thing it felt like somewhat the election of before where it seemed like Kerry would win and in fact Bush won. And what you felt was this profound, what you felt if you were a liberal Democrat like myself was this profound alienation from the rest of the country. Like how could your fellow countrymen look at the facts on the ground, look at this ill-conceived war, look at the um, animosity and hatred for America that it was stirring up abroad. George W. Bush looks like a prince and champion among men compared to this one. I mean, at least George W. Bush stood up after 9-11 and stood up for the rights and dignity of Muslim citizens. You can argue about how he treated Muslims abroad, but like the the general pluralism of America he, yeah. he said the right things about and and the the notion that it could feel like an afterthought to some set of people like yeah, ah, sure. yeah he's racist but you know I, my job this or that can i just add something to that and i think this maybe relates to what steven was saying as well is that and again this is more emotional than analytical and i'm sorry but another huge emotion that i've felt over the past week is shame deep shame mm-hmm. 
for being part of the electorate that voted for him. And in a way, I mean, obviously not me myself, but white women, you know, white women were the big surprise category. Everybody knew he would take white men. But I think one of the, the, the biggest gasps among pollsters was elicited by the fact that white women voted for him in the numbers they did. I think like 53% of white women that voted voted for him or something. Yeah, it's horrifying. And, and that makes me feel such... It's this weird combination of like shame at being the oppressor and shame at being the oppressed in a way. I mean, walking down the street the day after and thinking about the stuff that he said about women and did to women and the fact that women who look like me said that was okay and he can just lead the free world and that's fucking fine made me feel like Mm -hmm. a piece of dirt. You know, I mean, as as wrong as I might think it is, there was a part of me that was walking down the street. And of course, every person I would see who had a hijab on, right, or was a person of color, I was thinking just, you know, welcome to their world, right? I mean, just going outside and knowing like, oh, my needs, my desires, my physical safety mean shit to these people. Exactly. And that's, that's the point that I was trying to make and made very poorly on Twitter, which is that, I'm encased in 18,000 layers of privilege at the center of which I mistakenly thought was something transcendental, which is like my own autonomy. But but my autonomy is only an expression of privilege in a way that anybody's is. If you look at fucking history, I mean, civilization happens within a bubble by fucking definition. Like we all decided not to live in a goddamn Hobbesian jungle, right? So I I was trying to say that now I understand in some tiny reverberant way. I'm not trying to say that I'm now suddenly a member of a fucking oppressed class. Please do not misunderstand me. But I know now that my autonomy is contingent. It's not some thing wrapped up in my wonderfulness. It, it has nothing to do with that. And and it, I hope that what comes out of this is a much, much greater sense of empathy on everybody's part for how contingent anybody's autonomy is and how revocable people who are part of historically disesteemed classes, how revocable their human dignity is on a fucking minute by minute basis. So I I mean, I really was not trying to bring it back to like what I think I'm going to personally lose only that like the tremors, the fact that the tremors are hitting utterly fucking privileged white middle class men like me says that this is, you know, this is the fucking, this could be the fall of fucking Rome. I mean, I don't mean to make yeah, light no, of it. I, I, I don't think it's it's self-involved or self-aggrandizing to say there's just a fundamental permeating sense of insecurity everywhere. And like, there's a set of people for whom racism or sexism or sexual assault is like just not their problem, who see it as not their problem. And, 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 and it is and it will become more so. That breach, that gap, that divide feels dismal as well. Well, as long as you brought up sexism, I'll bring up something that probably you and Steve haven't been walking around feeling the the last week as much as me, which is that I didn't just not want Trump to win. I really liked Hillary Clinton. And by the end of this campaign, with the amount of grace and strength and resilience that she conducted the campaign with, I would say that I loved Hillary Clinton as a candidate. I have no idea what kind of president she would have been, but I was really excited to vote for her, incredibly excited to take my daughter to the polls to vote for her. And I was crushed for her when she lost, too. And I thought she accepted the loss very graciously. And I hope when she she plays with her grandchildren for a few weeks and gets it together that she becomes part of the opposition and helps to get all the coalitions that she built to try to stop whatever damage we can. Oh, my God. I feel like she's done. I hope she goes to the Bahamas and she never comes back. Not because I don't like her respect her, but just like 
she's done enough. Like we can, t- we can take it from here. Like just go. Yeah. Like she can rest. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't f- think she wants to rest. I bet she wants to do. No, something. I'm, I'm sure. But she, she deserves as much of a break as she wants. I mean, I don't know. I, can, I, I was really thinking through the gender piece afterwards. I mean, I was someone who, when the party nominated her, not to, not everyone can Monday morning quarterback with the best of them, but was just like people do not like her. Like people do not like her. This is a weird choice. This is a bad choice. Like the people should not underestimate how much people fucking hate Hillary Clinton. There are so many people who hate her so intensely. This seems really tough. And I felt very anxious about it throughout the primary, not so much so that I uh, thought Bernie would have been a better choice or had a shot or became my candidate. Like he just seemed less prepared and more erratic to me. But um, the the kind of coronation of her really troubled me in the primary. And then as soon as Trump became the nominee, I was like, well, phew. I'm not convinced she could have beat any of the rest of them, but I'm certain she can beat Trump. Like, what a fucking clown. Um, And honestly, like, my personal empathy for her really increased after the Access Hollywood tape and seeing her kind of carry through those debates with the strength that she did and um well, and a bit and, and the FBI leaks and the Julian Assange I mean the woman let's give her this I mean mm-hmm. she basically ran the last quarter of this campaign with a sh- safe shackle to her ankle you know it is unbelievable how sabotaged she was from all sides so mm-hmm. yeah I agree I, I'm not going to go on and on bitterly about that but I mean it isn't just that we elected this absolutely loathsome pile of human garbage, but that we had a really competent, smart, dedicated, passionate candidate who would have, I can say this, I don't know what policy she would have enacted, but she would have done her all and she would have lived in the fucking White House and not gone to home on the weekends. I mean, I will say one of my responses, which which feels small and meager and compared to how many people have how much to worry about, but like as a woman in charge of shit, felt really shitty to be a woman in charge of shit and be like oh right nobody likes that idea actually like just because it feels fine to have have the role that i have here like all of america looks at that idea and they're like what a fucking joke all right well i think we can wrap our internal discussion there all right well we're joined now by um slate political columnist jamel Bowie and slate editor brian louder jamel brian welcome to the show thank you for having us great to be here um, great to have you. Well, the premise of this uh, segment is that we're um, talking about items of culture, works of art that uh, offer us solace in a time, I guess, of public catastrophe. Um, Brian, why don't we start with you? What do you What do you have? Sure. Um, well, I've actually turned to this thing a number of times this year uh, and in my life, uh, and my my cultural form, I guess, is is drag. Um, on Friday night this past week, I knew that I absolutely had to go to a gay bar and see drag. Um, and that, for me, is because it's a lot like I think church is for people after a tragedy or after a really uh, traumatic cultural event um, or political event in this case. Uh, it, it functions a lot the same way. Um, I need to kind of uh, effervesce around something that's ecstatic and older than me. Uh, and that also has this this undercurrent of um, of melancholy. Actually, I think people think of drag as being you know playful or provocative, but actually, uh, given its connection to resistance uh, and its sort of formation under oppression in queer history, it always has that feeling of something sort of sad and mournful as well. Uh, and so, I I like to be around drag queens and uh, and sort of around uh, queer brothers and sisters during a time like this. That is a fantastic answer, I got to tell you. And 
Oh my God, I'm going to avail myself of it. Um, <laughs> well, what I was thinking when you were talking about it is that it, it's in addition to the to the melancholy, there's this carnival, you know, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily happy carnival, right? Like That's carnival right. is melancholy, but there's this inversion of of the norms. There's this inversion of the everyday that's kind of joyful and and sad at the same time. That's right. I mean, after after I, I actually wrote a bit about this earlier this summer. Um, after Pulse, uh, the Pulse massacre in Orlando, um, drag actually was very important in Orlando for people processing it. Um, that week, forty drag queens or so descended on the city from around the country, and people that I talked to down there um, were really really looked to them as as sort of totems around which to to sort of work this out. Um, and so, the, some of those performances will be, you know. Uh, about about survival or about about you know getting through it other ones w- will be sad even but uh but in the end it's about f- having a place uh to sort of come together and 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 find some kind of solace uh the other thing about it that i think is once you hang out around drag queens enough you, you get a sense of this they kind of work as a metaphor for the sort of fragility and effort it takes to to be a person in the world you know to to do drag takes hours and hours to get ready and it takes lots of investment of money uh but it can be destroyed by something as small as a kiss this is why when you interact with drag queens you never kiss them on the cheek directly you always do this air kiss thing uh because because the makeup is so easy to destroy um but even even as as that thing falls apart every night after the performance you do it again the next day you get up and and paint your face again um so there's some kind of there's there's a kind of beauty i think in in that in that metaphor too in times where we feel devastated one question is sort of like what is the point like should we just all turn off our televisions and and abandon culture entirely but but one thing that strikes me about your selection brian is the is the kind of what it suggests to be a fellow appreciator of a thing Mm. like what part of what you have in common part of what consuming any piece of art does is put you in a group with the rest of its audience and that sense and that and those audiences are different depending on the thing it is that you're responding to. But that sense, that question, like who else is out there and what are they like and who do I have empathy for and who has empathy for me? And, you know, those are some of the most unsettling questions out of out of last week. Mm-hmm. But that that relation to fellow audiences um, strikes me as one way to look at these things in a moment like this. Yeah. And I'll say on Friday night, I mean, there were it felt like a kind of. Not funeral service exactly, but some some I don't know if there's like a word for it exactly at the at the bar I went to, but there were many more people there than normal, and lots of people I hadn't seen in a long time, and people there was a sense in the air that people needed uh, to gather around uh, the queen there that night was Brenda Darling to, to gather sort of around her and have her help us work this thing out together. And, and again, they, the only the the only analog I can think of for that is something like church, um, and it was it was important. Drinking was also important, <laughs> but uh, but the, but the drag was was pretty pretty crucial. Jamel, why don't we turn to you? What what are you turning to? Sure. So you know, I'm a I'm a semi regular churchgoer, but for reasons of of scheduling, I've not been able to attend my um, sedate uh, Episcopal church in DC. Um, so in lieu of that, I've sort of gone to. The other thing I do to relax um, or just take my mind off of things or to give myself something up and to think about something else to think about, and that is watch movies. Um, that's pretty much what I do in my free time when I'm not uh, going about sort of uh, 
uh, everyday life. And on Friday, it's kind of a a um, a very purposeful. Let me not think about the election for two hours. Uh, my wife and I went to see Arrival uh, in in theaters in D.C. And Arrival is the new film starring Amy Adams. Um, it's science fiction film. It's kind of like Contact uh, for uh, for I guess this generation of moviegoers and sort of it's it, it hits a sweet spot for me film wise. Um, I like movies that are kind of ponderous and um, almost self-consciously uh, stylized. So I, I saw Moonlight last week or two weeks ago, and that kind of is in the same vein. Um, but Arrival, I don't know, it was very affecting for me, just the stillness and the extent to which this is very much a movie about an individual person's pain and their attempt to uh, work through it and understand it. Um, really resonated with me given the circumstances. And, uh, so yeah, that's the, I mean, that's what I did. Um, I will, cont- I will probably end up binging more and more movies as time goes on, uh, in order mm-hmm. to, in order to give myself some, uh, in order to like in- engage in my inner life without having it be related to politics. Because right now, um, much of my sort of personal reflection and, uh, discussion is is so much about either about politics or centers around the implications of our politics right now. Do you feel like I mean I you know anyone who follows you on Twitter knows how many movies of all eras and uh, levels of critical respect and genres you consume. Like your your movie diet exhausts me even to read about on Twitter. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Do you feel though like you turn to those in the same cast of mind as you do just you know, are a busy man who spends a lot of time thinking about politics, even in a world where we don't catastrophically elect a world historically bad and vile person. Um, did, did Do you feel like you were reading the movie or responding to Arrival differently than you would have if you just had been watching it, like, you know, taking a break the Friday after two conventions this summer? I think I was. Um, I, I think I, and, and I'll say, like, I, you know, I saw Arrival and it, it still stuck with me. Like, I'm still thinking about it. And I think I very much um, have responded to it in a different way. I think I don't want to like talk too much about the film because I don't want to spoil it for people. But I think because especially in its uh, final act, it it deals so much with regret um, and whether you know whether one should regret the choices one one makes. You know that <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot about whether I could have done anything personally, myself personally, to at least marginally alter the outcome of Tuesday, whether that is like actually make phone calls or or encourage more people to vote or just confront more people in my life about their political their political choices on a personal level. Um, I don't know. Just like it had me thinking more about what I have been doing for the past year in a way that I don't think would have been true had I just watched it on a, you know, if Hillary Clinton had won, for example. Well, Dana, are you relieved to hear that somebody can find solace in the movies? Have you been? Have you, like, are you excited to go, spend the next four years reviewing movies? Um, I mean, I've found solace in movies many a time. This last week, this that was not where I turned. I'm one of those people who uses art in a homeopathic way when suffering, rather than allopathic. It didn't sound good to me at all to distract myself with something 
fun or funny or it just seems it, fun seemed very trivial to me for the past week. And uh, hopefully I'll get out of that and enjoy some fun soon. But I did this thing that, you know, I generally do when I get to dark places, which is that I listen to dark music and I look at dark art. And uh, and in fact, the this was going to be an endorsement, but I'll just make it part of this segment. But the music, the, the title that popped into my head when I was, you know, reading some horrible headline about the latest Nazi to be recruited for the cabinet was was Leçon de Ténèbres, which means Lessons of Darkness, which is this, it's I mean, it's basically a sort of a liturgical form that many different composers have set to music. But my favorite and probably the most famous of the Lessons of Darkness is by this Baroque composer, Francois Couperin. comes from a biblical text that I believe is, you know, essentially like lamentations, hand-wringing in the Old Testament, but that's also used in Christian liturgies to kind of represent, and Christian, like very Christian people will know this better than I, but the three days that Christ is supposed to be dead, right, the days between Good Friday and Easter Sunday when he arises, um, that music is often played during that period because it's considered sort of the darkest moment of the liturgical year. Anyway, it's just this really, you know, complex, windy, polyphonic music that in a way, although it's very sad and dark, it in a way does take you someplace else because it has this very meditative quality. So I listened to a lot of Couperin's Lesson de Tenebre. And also when I finally kind of got out of my sluggish, unbathed, you know, several days of just sloth-like misery after the election results and started cleaning my apartment. Brian, you'll be proud. I cleaned like a madman. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> and while I was cleaning, Couperin didn't seem right, so I listened to Bessie Smith. I just put on a YouTube Bessie Smith mix, and that was perfect, too, in a way, because her music has this sadness, but it's also can be really funny and joyful and affirmative. And she's also just one of the greatest artists America has ever produced, you know, from from an atmosphere that you would never expect such beauty to grow from. She was dirt poor and, you know, was just someone who was the absolute lowest rung of society and who just became this great artist. So so Bessie Smith and Francois Couperin were doing it for me this week. The thing the thing that that calls to mind for me, Dana, is um, is something that I feel like I've been thinking about both culturally and in terms of the work we do here at Slate, which is like like words and what they're for. You know, like music conveys emotion and insight beyond language. I mean, obviously, there's language in in uh, the blues and there's language in in many songs, but it's not the fundamental unit of meaning in any given song and. I, my impulse in moments like this is to uh, is to toward poetry. I think for similar reasons that like the normal syntax of um, I don't know, just the the daily prosaic sentences that we traffic in, they like remain important, but they they feel insufficient. And the poem that I've been thinking of this week is actually a poem that the New Yorker published after nine eleven um, by W. S. Merwin, which is short. So I'll read it if you guys will have me. But it's sort of about, it's a poem about that language problem. It's called To the Words, and I guess is an ode in that way. When it happens, you are not there. Oh, you beyond numbers, beyond recollection, passed on from breath to breath, 
given again from day to day, from age to age, charged with knowledge, knowing nothing, indifferent elders, indispensable and sleepless keepers of our names before we ever came to be called by them, you that were formed to begin with, you that were cried out, you that were spoken to begin with to say what could not be said, ancient, precious, and helpless ones, say it. Wow, that's beautiful. That was great. You read it perfectly, too. And I, that poem just knocked me out, you know, 15 years ago. And it knocks me out now because it is, it uses language to beget meaning, but it's about the the tenuousness of that, the inability to, to count on that, the fragility of that. I mean, it brings me back to what you were saying about the fragility of self, self, Brian, but the, you know, I think the fundamental work before us in the world, but particularly as journalists, is like extracting meaning from information and conveying it to people and thinking about who we're conveying it to and how. And um, I don't propose a, a magazine that's composed entirely of verse for the next four years. <laughs> Although maybe that's an option that should be on the table. There was an orange monster named Trump. <laughs> Just limericks. <laughs> Just limericks for four years. That'd be a good way to go. Um, but to me, like the alchemy of poetry, it, it can do something different than prose, but it's also like a reminder and an inspiration that you can, you, you, that's part of what civilization, civilization is. You can conjure understanding from nothing and it feels like that's the task ahead well in a crazy way i mean even though that poem is so so broad it's literally addressed to language Mm -hmm. itself but it really functions as a as a trump administration protest poem because Mm. if there was ever a campaign and i'm sure will be an administration in which words don't matter and words are just things that you say and take back and lies don't matter right right? Mm -hmm. i mean the idea of respecting language at this moment seems incredibly important Right. Um, You've given me a transition, um, and I think I'll take it if it's all right, which is, um, you know, the collapse of the public sphere um, gives us a kind of permission slip to be trite. Um, But the um, I think W.H. Auden is kind of the poet of the, you know, madman 1930s. The poem the people are probably most likely to associate him with in that regard is September 1, 1939. So I just want to read, if it's okay, a couple of stanzas from it. So as a lot of people will know this poem. It starts, uh, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of a low dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz. Linz is the birthplace of Hitler, if you didn't know. Find what occurred at Linz, uh, what huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. And I think those those are pretty famous stanzas. And the last one I I'm less familiar with, but... I actually find quite moving when he goes through the possibility that literally the enlightenment is going to be gone, that we're just going to live in darkness, uh, universal darkness going forward. He ends the poem saying, defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. And it's just, it, it, you wouldn't, 
I don't know. I find it very hard to connect to W.H. Auden's poetry. I admire it without really being moved by it. And it's just amazing to think that now those same circumstances are gathering for us. And suddenly this poetry, which is kind of a dusty anachronism, is suddenly vital and meaningful. That's very depressing, but also, um, you know, a form of solace, I guess. All right, collective bridge jump, everyone. (laughs) How do we end that segment? (laughs) Holding hands. Oh, man. All right, well, on that note, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Jamel and Brian, thank you so much for coming in and talking about the possible solace and artifacts of culture. It's always a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. That was, that was great. Ron Rosenbaum is the author of Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of Evil. He's a longtime Slate contributor. Um, he's written for every magazine in the universe at the highest level for uh, so long. I've been a huge Ron Rosenbaum fan for 20 plus years. Ron, it's always a total pleasure to have you on the show, though this time I have to admit it's mitigated somewhat by the subject matter, but welcome. Well, thanks. Uh, I agree uh, about the mitigation, but I'm uh, grateful for the uh, introduction. We um we've traveled an enormous distance only in the last week, but let's 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 measure a distance that we've traveled over, let's say the last six months to a year, which is that you know, in that time frame we went from invoking something called Godwin's Law on the internet, which said that the first person to invoke Hitler in an internet or online debate automatically lost, and the reason we needed it was that for some reason having to do with human psychology as it married itself to new technology, people always wanted to try to sort of trump, so to speak, or end a debate um, with this rhetorical flourish and immediately say, well, if Hitler or whatever, and this needed to be shut down. Um, At some point in the last six months to a year, people realized Godwin's law needed to be rescinded. Presumably, we need to not only fully rescind it, we need to turn to historians of the rise of Hitler such as you and ask us how analogous what we're going through now is to Germany in the 1930s. Well, I've been uh, following the debate uh, pretty closely. And uh, to me, the real uh, paradox of the debate before the election was whether Trump had these beliefs or whether he was infatuated by the enthusiasm for racist beliefs among his followers. And in a way, his followers led him. Um, I still feel it's too early to tell what this guy actually believes or if he has any beliefs or, you know, case has been made that he doesn't even know how to read. Um, he certainly doesn't read much history. So, um, I uh I was uh, fascinated by the uh the uh, the way the debate was shaping up uh in the New Yorker over the uh uh past week where um David Remnick uh overnight uh after the election results were in did this eloquent uh, thing where he uh, essay where he called it a uh, the uh, Trump victory a I'll quote, a sickening event in the history of the U.S. Uh, and then he denounced the voices of normalization that were already being held. Normalization being, I think, the big issue now. Um, do we, do we see, uh, a Trump as a normal politician playing the electoral game or do we see him as an 
uh, aberrant, terrifying force for evil. Um, and Remnick was staking out the position that uh, sickening, uh, it's disgusting uh, that there are already voices of normalization. Uh, then Philip Gorevich, a writer I also admire, uh, sort of uh, reproved all of us who wanted to say, no, he's not our president, a guy who uh, uh, gives license to uh, racist, anti-black, anti-Semite, anti-immigrant uh, feelings in the lowest possible uh, uh, way. Uh, he's still our president. Um, so there seemed to be a debate shaping up. And then Remnick, four days later, wrote an essay in which he said, uh, deference is due to uh, Trump because he's our president, as if he'd sort of turned on a dime. And uh, it left me confused about what he really feels. And uh, again, the question is, uh, you know, how uh, evil, how Hitler-like Trump is. And um, I feel like you can't make that comparison uh, when you're dealing with Hitler's genocidal record of uh, millions of people killed, um, yeah. Jews, the war. Um, and uh, it's uh, too early, but the signs uh, are not good, putting the all-right uh, commander uh, in into a position of strategist. So I don't know. I... Uh, I feel, I feel like you can't yet pronounce one way or the other. I mean, we've been thinking a lot about the normalization question here at Slate, and I feel it's incredibly urgent for us to keep at the top of our coverage uh, an awareness of the way in which Trump achieved the the power that he's just achieved and the unacceptability of that route to power and the, and the troubling portents that lie within that strategy. Um, but but the the toxicity, you know, and people have been talking about autocracy and fascism. The the actual H word is used a little bit less, right? But the the sense that we could be at the dawn of an extremely dark, dark time um, is pervasive in media at the moment. And the question, I think, is how do you assess those signs and track them in an ongoing way that doesn't merely read as hysterical? I mean, I think to the to the set of people who voted for Trump, who don't see themselves inaccurately or fairly or immorally, as, as you may decide, as racist, but sort of think like, eh, he doesn't mean any of that stuff, can't stand the Clintons, don't want those guys back in, you know, the, 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 what is the utility of crying Hitler at a moment like this? And what is the best way to track the potential for encroaching um, autocracy and true, true political darkness? Well, one milestone, I think. I mean, I write about uh, in my book uh, the uh, Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch in 1923 after it failed. And he hated the press and he trashed the offices of the opposition newspaper, the Munich Post. They kept after him for 10 years. Uh, and uh, it took 10 years to normalize Hitler in Germany from 1923, the Beer Hall Putsch, to 1933, when he was considered tame enough to be 
made a puppet by the uh, more established right-wing parties. So it took the German nation 10 years to normalize Hitler. It took the American media about 10 minutes um, speaking about uh, the way People magazine, I, which I, I know a number of women uh, were shocked by this. Uh, you know the story. People, One of People magazine's staffers claimed that uh, Trump had uh, accosted her, however you want, uh, in a sexual, unwanted sexual manner. And uh, People magazine brought forth a half dozen staffers <clears throat> to corroborate the fact that she had mentioned this incident, which took place in 2005 or six, uh, at the time. Uh, corroborated the next morning after the Trump victory, this guy who had allegedly assaulted one of their staffers was on the smiling on the front cover of people with, Hey, welcome to our new president. Let's find out about his family. Um, and, uh, I, I, th I think it was, uh, I mean, some women felt personally as, uh, insulted by it, and I think men should have as well. You know, the the thing that's distinct here, of course, is it's hard to know how serious Trump is and what his actual relationship is to the racism that he has spewed and fomented, right? So the normalization of Hitler took place in the context of someone who had actually attempted a violent coup on the government, right? Who had led a violent attempt at government overthrow, who had smashed up a press office and, and not just used all caps on Twitter to to uh, drag his <laughs> dra drag, right? I mean, like so far, what Trump has done is extremely tame compared to what Hitler even of 1933 has done. You're absolutely right. And, I mean, and so so the so to say to compare those two things, what what happened was he attempted a violent route animated by his underlying beliefs and then opted for something more narrow. What's unclear in Trump and what's dismaying about Trump's uh, position so far is his willingness to dally with these these nationalist, racist, bigoted elements and his unwillingness to cry foul. I mean, there was the, the flap this weekend of the fact that he did take the occasion of his 60 Minutes interview to say, stop it to the camera to um, any fans or supporters of his who've been engaging in hate crimes or, or violence of any kind. But um, to do that at the same time as you name someone like Steve Bannon uh, to serve in your White House is is appalling. But it's appalling in a different way than someone who has like attempted violent overthrow as a method and is slowly after a decade coming around to a more polite means of um, of bigotry. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm just so curious how to think about it. I mean, it feels like we have to keep the examples of, of dangerous autocrats of all stripes at the top of our mind. But the the best way to do that without without feeling like you can get whatever your argument is knocked down by people who are still adhering to Godwin's law uh, is the thing that that I'm not totally clear on. I agree. It's difficult, and it, it will be difficult to know any. Uh absolute answer to this for some time. One thing is interesting is that uh, with Hitler, his uh, anti-Semitic followers uh, followed him. 
They read Mein Kampf. They followed his uh, uh, his vicious, hysterical speeches against Jews, minorities. Um, but uh, with Trump, it's almost like uh, he's following his followers. Uh, I would cite uh, uh, Julia Yaffe, uh, who wrote a very bland story about Melania and uh, started getting pictures of her being shoved into the ovens, bullets in her head. Myself, when I uh, I linked to an article on Twitter uh, that uh, described how thrilled Trump's followers would be by uh, an anti-Semitic turn uh, in his uh, rhetoric. I got like... 40 of the lowest, scummiest, most vicious anti-Semitic responses. So that's what I'm saying. I don't, I think the followers are worse in a way than Trump. He's brought out, uh, uh the kind of dark, vicious side fringe to America that I was personally shocked to find exists. But but mm. just if you remember that he did start his whole political career with both of those words and quotes, being a birther and questioning Obama's legitimacy, that's very different from a Hitler-like anti-Semitism. But I mean, you can't you can't see it all as 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 him being a man without principles and without ideals or beliefs who's being led by his followers. Although I think you're right, Ron, that the the, the range of hate keeps expanding. Right, yeah. his coalition of hate uh, is always growing. Right, I. I don't know what to make of the birtherism, whether it was an opportunistic thing, uh, uh, something to make his brand more prominent, or did he really, did he really believe it? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the question with him. Does he really believe this stuff? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do I feel like it, no, centuries later, history will still be trying to figure out what, if anything, yes. is happening in the brain tissue of Donald Trump. I mean, yeah. is there a more inscrutable Let, human? Let's save a slice of that brain to uh, examine it. <laughs> Put it in a very safe, deep <laughs> yeah. freeze. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that the danger that, that, in fact, there is a kind of, you know, nullity inside there that, that, you know the danger of maximum illiberality unfolded. In other words, is that we think we're inoculating ourselves against the possibility of Germany in the 1930s by by going back and learning all of its lessons and applying them to the present tense. Maybe there's a danger there, which is that disanalogy won't save us either. That 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 yeah, it's true that Hitler had a you know uh, a, a very specific and and more or less genocidal agenda from the beginning, and then obviously completely genocidal, um, was revealed to be completely genocidal. Do we need Trump to be perfectly analogous to anything in history for him to be maximally dangerous? I mean, I think the answer is is no, that, 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 that the irony could be that he's completely bereft of any strong feelings about anything, that what motivates him is vanity and insecurity, the, the coin, you know, the, the, the two faces of that coin, and that... Um, if he feels as though there's a powerful, organized, vociferous opposition to him and his popularity is slipping, we don't really know what he'll do and what he'll countenance in order to um, win back uh, power in the face of lost popularity. That's uh, well said, I think. Uh, 
I interviewed Trump about 25 years ago uh, on the subject of nuclear weapons. He had announced that he was going to solve the problem of nuclear proliferation. And uh, did I think that he had any chance of this? No, but it was just sort of something to marvel at, him sitting in the upper room of uh, 21 and discoursing about uh, how he had learned from Gaddafi's Libyan pilot that Gaddafi was crazy and therefore we had to uh, uh, bomb him or the French who were supplying him. Y- you know, it was, a, uh, I would say, not a well-thought-out response to the nuclear uh, dilemma. This seems like an important and very <laughs> scary question to ask at this moment, but did he strike you as a bellicose person who enjoyed the idea of waging war? Yes, I think he, he, he enjoyed the idea that uh, he could be captain of the ship as it plowed its way through the rough waters of uh, uh, negotiation and that he, he, the art of the deal is his mantra uh, that he uh, could make a deal better than anyone else. Um, and uh, maybe he still thinks that, although the fact that he has his finger, you know, inches away from the uh, nuclear button doesn't give you much confidence of his uh, snap judgments. Ron, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show within um, within the constraints of this awful turn of events. Uh, I hope we get to talk to you at some point in the future about something else. But thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. Next time, Hollywood musical run. Okay. <laughs> the producers. <laughs> Springtime for Trump. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. I'm sorry to announce that this is the last show that our intern, Lizzie Faison, will be uh, a part of. Um, Lizzie's coming to the studio to endorse. Lizzie, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's Culture Gab Fest custom to uh, bring our interns on to endorse before they depart. So we will dearly miss you. But uh, tell us your endorsement for the week. I thought of this actually just now when Dana spoke about Bessie Smith and how she kind of manically cleaned her bathroom and she's listening. Um, and I, a few years ago, um, I took a road trip across America and from coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco going down. Um, through the south and kind of wheeling our way through. After we stopped in Memphis, we drove down the Mississippi and stopped in um, Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is kind of part of the Blues Trail. And we stayed at this incredible hotel called the Riverside Hotel, which used to be um, lodging for traveling musicians since 1944. It was previously um, the G.T. Thomas Hospital um, for afro-americans which is what it says on um it's kind of blue plaque and it was actually the place that bessie smith was taken to um after her car accident and where she died and her room is um kind of in still in the exact same state that it was then and and all of the rooms have names on the doors um from the artists that stayed there robert nighthawk left his suitcase there the night before he died and um, Ike Turner was lived there for a while and um, Screaming Jay Hawkins and kind of every room is, has a name plaque of who lived there before 
And it was just one of the most incredible places to stay, to know the history of that place. And the host who, the woman who owns it, whose father owned it and died um, just before we arrived, was called Z. And she was just the most hospitable um, person that we I'd met. And it uh, gave me a real sense of of what the South was. Just the way that music worked as as a language and conversation and a, a way that it brought people together. And that's that feeling really felt was uh, incredible. And I just wanted to remember her and the Riverside Hotel. And you can stay there. And it's in the same town as where uh, Morgan Freeman has his own jazz bar. And I just wanted to kind of give it a shout out because it was one of the m- most incredible places I've be seen in America. That's really beautiful, Lizzie. I would love to visit that place. It makes me glad to know that there is a plaque in the hospital where Bessie Smith died because, you know, for many years, for decades after she died, she had no monument. She had no burial site with her name on it. And many, many years later, Janis Joplin actually was the person who who donated for the Bessie Smith Memorial to be to be constructed and did not show up at the dedication. She did, she did it anonymously. Dana, what do you have? Well, first, I'll, I'll just go with my, uh, my original endorsement, which I, I happen to mention in our What Can Art Do in Times of Crisis segment. But since I didn't endorse a specific version of Couperin's La Son de Ténèbres, and I've had some people ask in the past, why don't you do classical music and please recommend more classical music? So if you want a specific great recording of Couperin's La Son de Ténèbres, there's one by a group called Les Arts Florissants. And uh, yeah, you can find it all over the place. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. Um, so again, that's Francois Couperin, Lessons de Ténèbres, Lessons of Darkness. But, you know, I'm also going to throw in something a little bit more inspiring that I actually discovered during the course of taping this podcast in between guests, and we had a little moment of downtime. So the wonderful writer Virginia Heffernan has written something on Hillary Clinton that I find so moving and inspiring and that I wish that I had written myself, in which she talks about, you know, some of the inspiration that I was mentioning before, and then not every single person who voted for Hillary did so holding their nose or choosing the lesser of two evils. Some of us really liked her and thought that she would have been a great leader. And uh, so she has this wonderful piece in Lenny Letter, which is the newsletter run by Lena Dunham and edited by once uh, Slate employee Jess Gross. Actually, a great thing to subscribe to. It's called Hillary Clinton is More Than a President. And, you know, if you hate Hillary Clinton, this may drive you crazy. But if you, like me, feel like she was world historically screwed over and could have been someone who really brought the country together, then go read Virginia Heffernan's piece. Again, it's on Lenny Letter and it's called Hillary Clinton is More Than a President. Uh, wonderful. Julia, what do you have? Uh, I was excoriated on Facebook. I'm sure I will be many more times in the next four years. But most recently, I was excoriated on Facebook because an old college friend of mine posted post-election, like, give me some absorbing fiction to read. Uh, I, I need I need something. She was planning to lean into the thrall of narrative, it sounded like, as a distraction from the the dismay of the moment, which we didn't we didn't discuss the pot boiler or the page turner as a as a potential escape, but that's another cultural route to go. Uh, and I quite sincerely endorsed the last book I read, which I found totally absorbing from a plot and narrative perspective, which was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which I had never read, despite being an Atwood fan, and which I picked up and read over the past month. I got laughed off the page because The Handmaid's Tale is a vision of a post-apocalyptic future in which a combination of despotism and environmental calamity have created a world in which women are stripped of all rights and are useful only for their sexual and reproductive functions. It's Mike Pence's America. Yeah. um, And so everyone else on the Facebook feed was like, 
what's wrong with you, Julia? That's like the last thing you should read. But uh, I do think it's really worth reading. Um, I, I don't know why I had never turned to it. I think I had the notion, the misplaced notion. I don't know where I got it from that it was like like long and slow and like a little too, I don't know, embarrassingly 80s in its politics or something like that, that it just wouldn't feel pertinent or fresh. And even just reading it under the um, waning days of Hillary Clinton's candidacy, it felt incredibly pertinent. But even separate from that, it's just like a great, it's just an incredibly well-told story, the way in which the world is built, the mystery and confusion that meet you when you first enter it and how it slowly reveals itself and the origins and instruments of the way power works in this dark vision of America uh, are all really, really beautifully done. Margaret Atwood is always a wonderful depictor of social interaction. I think she can uh, sketch the nuance and currents of how people encounter each other, and she envisions how communication does and does not happen in an apocalyptic moment in a really interesting way. And I also would recommend I did a combination of reading the book on Kindle and then listening to it as an audiobook. And then there's an edition read by Claire Danes, and Claire Danes has a good uh, element of the of the, of the malcontent and the the dissident in her general posture toward life and in some of the big roles that she's played. So she was a really great voice for it. So if you're looking for fiction that is both absorbing and perhaps also gloomily apropos and you've never read The Handmaid's Tale or even if you've only read it long ago, I heartily recommend it. I've been meaning to read that for a long time and now I'm committed to doing it soon. Um so I'm going to endorse um, a book by my old um, academic mentor, Richard Rorty, that has been um, interest in which has been revived recently because a quote from it is is circulating the internet. Um, and if I, I'll read you the quote and you'll see why. He says, um, he's prognosticating openly about what the future might look like. And he says, members of labor unions and unorganized and unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent their wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they'll realize that suburban white-collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for, someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, Overpaid bond salesmen and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. And once the strongman takes office, no one can predict what will happen. Um, uh, anything that revives the good name of Richard Rorty to me is, is, is well, <laughs> not anything, not this. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where um, that was going. <laughs> it was all um, worth it for the Rorty prose. For the Rorty revival. <laughs> I, 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 what I meant when I said that was that even though I think the thrust of that quote is being slightly, or the thrust of the book is probably being slightly misunderstood. It's wonderful just to hear his voice and see that people are apparently buying the book. It got up to 1200 on Amazon, which overall, which is, means it's actually selling uh, real copies for a kind of forgotten semi-academic book. But you know, the real point of that book, it's called Achieving Our Country, came out in 1996. He, it wasn't really about the rise of a frightening right wing, but more about the abdication on the on the part of a blasé left and that the left had become unpatriotic and spectatorial and had turned away from American Democrats like Walt Whitman and John Dewey and toward um, French theory 
and other forms of knowledge that were in their in their own way, frankly, undemocratic. I mean, he's an incredible thinker, and I don't want to oversimplify it. But I do think that towards a revival, and I, you, you heard this in Clinton's campaign, that instinctively, at a very certain moment, uh, possibly after the Republican convention, it was clear that Trump was profoundly unpatriotic figure. And this left an opening for the Democratic Party, if not the left in its entirety, to become quite patriotic and say, no, this country actually stands for certain things. We believe in them deeply. And to run the country down and to treat its, you know, enlightenment heritage as if it's a, you know, pinata is frankly disgusting. And anyway, I think that this book could supply something of a rallying cry for people who think that a new and more patriotic and frankly democratic left is possible. And then the other thing I want to endorse very quickly is, um, you know, there is a disanalogy between America and, you know, whatever it is, 2016 and, and Germany in 1933, which is that, you know, we haven't been crushed by depression, um, economic depression. We do have incredibly strong liberal and civic institutions uh, in the nonprofit sphere support them. Uh, and by that, I mean quite specifically make a donation to Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and subscribe to The Washington Post, The New York Times, your local newspaper, if those are not your local newspaper, um, and a Slate Plus, and any journalistic outlet that makes an ongoing contribution to a public norm of truth-telling, that is the only way we are going to get through this and survive it. So I, I beg you, please do that, and um, we'll, um, we'll meet here again in four years. All right, uh, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our interns are Daniel Schrader and, for the last time, sadly, Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Our own Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and of course Brian Lauder and Jamel Bowie, Ron Rosenbaum and Lizzie Fison. I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. Exo-